90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm living the dream inside because it's so hot. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's quite moist. The brewery in town here is having a Hawaiian-themed party tomorrow, and they said we can pretend the Arkansas humidity is ocean breezes. <laughs> Except it just hangs here doing nothing. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, I'm headed back to Colorado, and I can't wait just to get into air that is not, you know, something I can wring water directly from. To like, literally get into less air. Right, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> Yeah. So we actually saw each other earlier this week in person. Yay. <laughs> More magnetometer. It wasn't problems, though. It was upgrades. So that's exciting. Software upgrades and do a tune-up because uh, your your machine had been running for over a year and needed some just regular maintenance. Mm-hmm. And we could just call you and you could just show up, not, you know, a plane ride and God knows your luck with planes. You never get here and all that jazz. We didn't have to worry about any of that. <laughs> yeah. So it was nice and got to uh, hang out over there and chat with you, go have some great burgers and then hop on the turnpike and get back here in about three hours. Yeah, that's awesome. That was super good. And as always, we didn't record when we were together, which we could have probably, but whatever. <laughs> The timing would have been difficult. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. And the burger restaurant was real noisy, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is a summer short. We could probably just talk about, you know, the beers you had while you were here and the burgers, right? Well, there was a cherry lime sour that was amazing. Mm-hmm. You drank all of it. <laughs> yes. Uh, was there with a, a friend and we had the last two glasses. Oh, so lucky. Um, I had a strawberry infused ale the other day and it was amazing and i also got the last glass so something about our luck yeah uh i haven't found it this summer uh, but last summer we found a rhubarb oh nice one that was quite interesting mm, that is really interesting there's that grapefruit sculpin that's really good um one of my grad students was real obsessed with that one um, but you had this strawberry. It was an unfiltered wheat with a strawberry in it. And it tasted like, it didn't look like, but it tasted like you were just drinking like strawberry puree. Like the after, like the fresh aftertaste of that was unbelievable. So yeah, I'm real sad that was the last glass of that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for joining us on the Don't Panic Beer Cast. <laughs> hey, we talked about that, but Nerds on Draft was already taken. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which they haven't put out a show in quite a while, I'm sad. Oh, well, see, we're filling the void. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, well, so this is going to be, uh, we're, we're coming to the home stretch on summer shorts, really. You know, it's so sad in so many ways, because, you know, they're not short, but they're a little bit less um, less daunting to sit down and record. You're like, oh, summer shorts, nice. And also, since we're coming to the end, that means that, Oh, the semester is about to start. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Academic New Year is here. Oh, man. I even bought like a July to July planner because I'm like, nope, I can't get away from it. Like, this is my year. Oh. <laughs> so clearly, I haven't started doing anything I'm supposed to by my constant ugging over here. 
Right. And uh, I'm going to have to start getting an October to October planner because so many things in our grant <laughs> system run on that financial year. Uh, I'm actually coming up on my end of the year crunch. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I didn't even think about that, but you were correct. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was sad because I had to throw away half of a planner. If I was digital, obviously I wouldn't have these problems, but. Right. <laughs> I'll, ne- I'll never, never go that way. <laughs> well, but so we talked about, you were talking about all the moisture in the air and it has been very moist. We've had lots of thunderstorms and things around here, uh, but nothing compared to moisture in the air associated with monsoons. Right. Um, I thought the humidity was a good segue. Um, we haven't had any rain, actually, in all of July. We've only had, like, 0.1 inches here, and we're in a flash drought. But that got me thinking about monsoons, mostly because checking the weather in Colorado, those afternoon thunderstorms are starting to happen. And I thought that maybe people would like to hear about what causes monsoons in general, because we have them. The biggest one, obviously, is in Asia that we talk about, but we also have them here in the U.S. too, and have had them through climatic history of the Earth. Right, and so monsoon is not really a a, a distinct event. It's actually more of a pattern of six months and then six months. Right, exactly. Um, so we say like the monsoon, but just like we say the dust bowl, it wasn't, it's not one thing. And the word monsoon just means like a changing of wind. Um, and so it's sort of these seasonal, like you said, six months. So these seasonal overarching wind direction changes. And that's kind of what we colloquially call monsoons. And like I said, like the biggest one, when you say monsoon, I think everybody thinks of India. I think everyone thinks of it. I have no quantitative data of that, but <laughs> that's the big one that I think of is the monsoon in India and then the corresponding one in the eastern part of Africa due to those large-scale weather patterns that set up and change direction over these six-month periods. Right, and so in the, the summer monsoons, the rainy monsoons, these are mostly westerly flow, and you get a lot of what in meteorology we call convergence. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so the thing that causes that westerly flow has to do with the heating differences between land and water. So sort of like a, a, a sea breeze? Right. It's, it's basically exactly like that, but on a much larger scale. Right. So you have north of... India was not always a part of Asia, right? (laughs) It was floating along by itself. It was its own little microcontinent. And it slammed pretty hard (laughs) into Asia, obviously, because we have the Himalayas, the highest mountain range in the world. Right. (laughs) And uh, it's still slamming pretty hard into Asia, actually. (laughs) And when it did this, it not only raised up the Himalayas, but created the Tibetan Plateau. And so this is just north of India, on the other side of the Himalayas, and it's this very high spot. And the Tibetan Plateau is not exactly a forest at all, okay? It's this big, open, sort of plains-type area. And that acts as a big brick, essentially. (laughs) And it sits there and bakes and bakes in the sun, okay? And so you're heating this up, and we know what hot air does, right? (laughs) 
comes out of our mouths. And that. (laughs) (laughs) Speak for yourself, John. (laughs) So this hot air starts to rise, right? And you create this like low pressure, this big low pressure system that sets up, not permanently, but during the summer months over India and the Tibetan Plateau. And that's where you start to get the westerly flow, which is flowing over the Indian Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean that brings all this moisture. Right. And so I don't really think we've talked much about a sea breeze before. No. So I'd like to go over some of the physics of that. (laughs) All right. Let's do it. This is not the, uh, we're not talking about the cocktail here. (laughs) Yeah. And that, that is actually when you, when you type sea breeze into Google, that is mostly what you get. (laughs) Beautiful. Because I was hoping it was a cocktail when I said that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> but I figured it had to be. <laughs> so anyway. you mostly get bars and cocktails. Um, Great. <laughs> so you mentioned that the land is like this big brick baking in the sun. Well, the land can change temperature a lot faster than the ocean. Right. Water's heat capacity is bananas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of those other things that makes water really weird. Right. So the water does heat up, but more slowly than the land. So we get... A rising motion over the land, like you mentioned, the hot air rises, mm-hmm. which actually creates low pressure mm-hmm. at right. ground level because at we're surface, evacuating yeah. air. Right. So in the upper levels, we're shoving all this air from ground up there and we actually create a higher pressure system. Right. And so this is the synoptic scale high pressure that sets up, in this case, over india and the tibetan plateau during the summer months right and then over the water during the day it's relatively high pressure compared to the land we don't have a lot of rising motion over it Mm -hmm. and in fact some of the air that got lofted goes out over the water at a high altitude and eventually sinks okay so now we've set up the opposite over the water then high pressure at the surface of the water low pressure above it So at the ground level, at the surface level, we have high pressure at the sea, low pressure at the land. So we have wind blowing onshore, Mm -hmm. and that's bringing tons of moisture with it. Right. So that's exactly what's happening on this larger scale for a longer time period with the monsoons. And that air that's going over the water is the key there, right? So the temperature differentials between land and air and how much... How fast they heat and how cool they, or how fast they heat up and cool down, and how much heat they can take overall, combines to make this circulation, and that fetch or you know, water going or wind going over water for a long period of time starts to prime the air at the surface uh, when it gets over land, and it is juicy. Right, and then it gets all this uh, this juicy, this moist air gets over land, and all the air over land is rising, right? Right, because remember, this is, so that's a, that's a, like a large-scale synoptic thing, but then you have diurnal heating, and so when you have the presence of mountains, things like this, you can get, you know, orographic effects, which you can do in the Himalayas, obviously. Um, and then when we talk about the North American monsoon, the same thing. And so you have this diurnal heating, 
sometimes you have these orographic effects that work along with it and you start to raise up all this air and therefore in this juicy juicy environment you're going to start to get a bunch of storms right so you raise up the air you start condensing water you start releasing energy you start heating the air more from the condensation so it goes upwards faster so it condenses more so it heats up more so it goes. yep mm-hmm. yep exactly <laughs> and this is a really uh, classic thermodynamics problem it is and it's the it's the long scale nature of these large synoptic highs and lows that create these monsoons like and then you just just like you said you repeat this thing every day while that synoptic scale pattern is sitting there just pumping all this juicy air over the land right and so i actually looked up some heat capacities because you say well surely land and water don't heat up that you know the difference can't be that large no it's a bunch right (laughs) So it's about a factor of 10. Okay. (laughs) Uh, So ocean is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of four joules of energy per each gram of water per each Kelvin of temperature change. Okay. So that's kind of a confusing unit, joules per gram per Kelvin. (laughs) Yeah. So how many degrees do you need to raise? How much water? Okay, that gives you the number of joules. So about four. Uh, Dirt, sand, rock, that kind of thing two to four or point two to point, point two four to, yeah okay uh so yeah a factor of 10 difference so you can really pump the energy into the land and and then so at night in the sea breeze situation do mm-hmm. you get the land cools faster yeah. it's got this yeah. lower heat capacity yep. so the low sets up over it the ocean's now warmer the high surface high sets up over it and you get offshore flow mm-hmm. so you get very and Granted, the, the whole synoptic flow is not going to change diurnally. Right. But right. you do get a seasonal change in the synoptic flow, and you get a diurnal change in the local, the, the more mesoscale flow. Right. And so you get, I mean, storms that you can kind of set your watch by. Right, exactly, which is definitely true in the monsoon season. But as you can imagine, it's easy to say all this or make a conceptual diagram of this, but in reality... You know, how on this rotating planet, (laughs) how often can you, you know, lock that synoptic scale in, right? It's not just the high pressure, you know, over Eastern Africa, the low pressure over India. Like there's connection with the whole atmosphere. So certain other synoptic scale things can act to amplify or decrease the monsoonal footprint right so in in isolation the diagram we draw is the you know thousand year average of what happens (laughs) right yeah exactly (laughs) exactly um because a, a lot goes into i mean you know just like you said you can set your watch by it okay well that's great um i actually when i was a grad not a grad student an undergrad and i worked at the severe storms lab um i was responsible for looking at the Kiwo radar, so the Phoenix area. And in that Phoenix-Tucson area during the summer months, starts around June or July, goes through September, so it's called, you know, the North American monsoon season. Um, And it's not a classical monsoon, for reasons we'll talk about, but it's the same sort of effect. You know that every afternoon 
you were going to start to have these little thunderstorms that popped up. Um, and so you could set your watch by that. But in the desert, you know, with all these people, this area is still ridiculously fastly growing, even though there's no water. <laughs> you definitely want to have some long-term predictions about what you think monsoon season is going to do right? Are we going to have a big monsoon season where we get a lot of water? Do we need to worry about flooding? This place in the desert where it doesn't rain very much, people freak out when it starts to flood, just like when it snows in Georgia, cars catch on fire, right? Right. <laughs> so some of these monsoon storms can be, have very high rainfall rates just because there's so much moisture in the air. So the prediction of the monsoon is pretty important. And then when it doesn't show up, now you've got big problems. And I mean, this happens in India too. You know, you need to know, are your crops going to get lots of great rain? Are they going to flood? What do you need to prepare for? And so these outside synoptic scale influences, well, they're still synoptic scale, but these outside influences cause a lot of problems too. And here it's the ENSO circulation. So the El Nino Southern Oscillation can act to make the monsoon worse or make it better. Yeah. So, I mean, weather and climate, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly right. <laughs> well, what's it like today or this year or what's it like on average? Right. Um, <laughs> so the North America, I said the North American monsoon wasn't really classic monsoon. I think people fight about this. I'm not going to fight about it, but <laughs> it is interesting um, how it works a little bit differently. And that's just because we don't have this Tibetan plateau of a brick. We just sort of have the Sonoran Desert area right there. And then um, the Sierra Occidental in Mexico. So that area is what sort of acts like the brick, but it's not quite the same. Um, doesn't have the same sort of dynamic setup as the area around India. And it also, when you're pulling in, you get that low pressure at the surface, you're pulling in stuff kind of from the Gulf of Mexico, even though that's a little far away, but also from like the Gulf of California. So it's not the huge reservoir of water that you get when you're pulling stuff, you know, over the Atlantic and the Indian oceans, like in India or right, and I mean, conversely yeah. in Eastern Africa. Yeah. And this is somewhat associated with the, uh, what we would call the death ridge in the summer. Right. That yes, sets up exactly. over the plains. So we get this mm -hmm. big high pressure system over the plains, mm -hmm. and we have consistently relatively low surface pressure, pressure off over sort of Nevada and Southern California that is pulling these southern to southeasterly and some southwesterly components of moisture in. Right. Yep, exactly. That's exactly right. But it's just not as, um, yeah, it's not as synoptically stable, I guess. Um, which you can tell every year if you're fortunate enough to live under the death ridge. <laughs> Some years you'll have, you know, 30 days of 100 plus degree temperatures. And like this year, I mean, we've only hit 100 twice, I think. Yeah. So. Unless, uh, in, in interestingly enough, random side note, uh, there's a weather station very near my house. It's the one that Weather Underground pulls up mm -hmm. where every morning it suddenly jumps from ambient temperatures to about a hundred, 101 degrees for about five minutes and then falls back to a seemingly reasonable temperature. This is a sensor problem, huh? 
You know, I think I figured it out. I'm not sure where this station is, but I'm pretty sure because the time of this peak is shifting a little bit now, I think that there's something reflective in their yard uh-huh. that's yeah. concentrating the sun on the sensor yep. for a few minutes every morning. That's awesome. That's exactly what I was uh, going to say. <laughs> Somebody's like super shiny yard bird or something, right? It's like a bird feeder or something. Exactly. But, but since the time has started to shift, I'm pretty sure that's what it is. That is uh, very interesting. <laughs> oh, I want to be there when you go to that house and be like, excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so one thing, when you were talking about this uh, low that sets up out west, and, I mean, we think it's hot here. It's hotter there. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that is true. You'll hear meteorologists talk about this thing called the thermal low. Mm-hmm. And that's just a buzzword for exactly what we've been talking about. The <laughs> land surface is really hot. The air gets really hot and screams upward. So you have low pressure at the surface. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. And I mean, this is a weird, it's not that weird of a phenomenon, but you know, you get this out in Tucson and stuff and you can see these, this low pressure set up there in the, the valley, basically. It kind of like concentrates it there and it does some weird stuff to the local air flow, but that's probably another show. Uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, I just so, added to our list heat bursts for a oh, show. So. there you go. <laughs> So, so this is sort of just the monsoons in general, and this is kind of why this starts to happen. Um, I actually had somebody ask me if I could pull up um, lightning maps for Colorado because they were trying to plan their field work, and they didn't know whether May would be the best time to go or, like, August or September would be the best time to go. And I said, oh, yes, let me do that for you. Um, and it showed just that, that, you know, the increase of these thunderstorms Uh, towards the latter part of the summer, which is the monsoon season. So it's that working together of the everyday weather, the diurnal heating, and the orographic lift that is then juicified by these large-scale synoptic, you know, highs and lows that can create this constant pumping of water, in this case from mostly the Gulf of California and uh, the Pacific into our southwestern states to cause this phenomenon and juicified is not <laughs> the meteorological buzzword it totally is <laughs> i'm making it i did it <laughs> <laughs> fine moisture advection blah 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 <laughs> <laughs> well you know we, we've talked about jargon before so exactly everyone knows what juicified means <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, so the monsoon's kind of near and dear to my heart because that's what I worked with as an undergrad. And um, also, I love a good afternoon thunderstorm. So there you go. Well, you know, and I think this uh, actually sort of tangentially leads us to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay! Did it tangentially lead us because this is my next favorite thing? Uh, no, so oh, lightning. Okay. Oh, fine. Okay. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> that's true too so this was one of those papers that made me think maybe all of these rock magnetists don't (laughs) not completely know what they're talking about Uh, uh, uh. maybe there is some science to this rock magnetism business okay i want to qualify this real quick and say the only reason you're impressed was by their experimental setup but we'll get to that (laughs) in a minute (laughs) 
Um, yeah, so I saw this, you know, this buzzy science article about this, but pulled up the real paper about it, um, and it's in the Journal of Archaeological Science, and it's by Fu and then Joe Kirschfink, who we've talked about on the show and a whole bunch of other people. Um, and it's the knowledge of magnetism in ancient Mesoamerica, precision measurements of the potbelly sculptures from Monte Alto, Guatemala. Right. And when you first sent me this, I was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and then uh, it's, it's a really interesting paper. So they've got these giant sculptures. They're not really sure what they represent, whether it was a god or an elite class or what, but they've got these Mm -hmm. very, they call them rotund sculptures. (laughs) That's Uh, what I call myself as well. (laughs) So these large sculptures and from a a survey in the seventies where they just like waved a compass around it and (laughs) highlighted the areas where the needle deflected the most, Uh they decided that there's probably some coincidence and the different anatomical features of the sculptures, like belly buttons, mm-hmm. with where the most strongly magnetized sections of this basalt are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I love it. Yeah. The qualitative conclusions. <laughs> so this... did, did the culture that make this, did they understand magnetism? They, it looks like they might have because they had to know how to detect it to know where, how to carve these. All right, exactly. So there's a lot of talk in this paper, since it's in the Journal of Archaeology, about where these sculptures came from and what the ages were. They've been moved um, since from where they originated from. And, you know, you can tell that by the geology of them. Like you said, they're these basalt big boulders. And we ask a lot of times in magnetism, you know, when did it get its magnetization? And you can even tell when it got it in relation to how it was sculpted, which is super cool. (laughs) And so, like you said, John, they think that maybe these, you know, pre, I don't even know which stages they are. These Mesoamerican cultures could tell using stuff like lodestones um, or more interestingly, um, <laughs> shined iron oxide mirrors like magnetite or hematite, and they could use these ones to detect whether things had magnetism or not. And in this case, we're talking about um, isothermal remnant magnetizations, so not magnetizations that formed when the bold when the basalt cooled, but something that was given to the basalts, and in this case, it's lightning, because you've got to have something super strong in order for a lodestone to detect that it's magnetic, and lightning is exactly what does that. And we're in an area, because of the intertropical convergence zone location, Mm -hmm. there's lightning everywhere all the time. (laughs) Yeah, I loved it. They basically said saturation on the lightning mapping (laughs) shows that this is completely plausible. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, they sort of did some statistics and said, okay, well, look, if if they go mine some of this hematite to polish for mirrors, there's a pretty good chance that something like one out of every 20 would have had a strong mag- magnetic uh, and IRM mm-hmm. because that section of rock had been hit by lightning. Right. And you have to, in order to use, this was the coolest part for me, which was completely not 
the main point of this paper, um, that in order to use that type of magnetite or hematite, or in some cases pyrite, as a compass needle, it has to be isothermally remnantly magnetized. Like it has to have this strong induced magnetism in order to turn it into a dipole. Otherwise, it's got a lot of magnetism, but there are all these tiny little domains that are in all different directions. So you turn it into this large dipole, and then you can use this rock as a magnet to figure this stuff out, which is maybe what the people who carved these did, because like you said, there were magnetic anomalies that were associated with like temples, or like the temple in your head, or their navels, which was very interesting. But it was also really interesting how they quantified this earlier qualif qualified study of these um of these different statues yeah and you know before we get there i was thinking about this a little bit ago of how would one notice that your little hematite mirror around your neck is magnetic and like you know okay so you're going to carve this thing and you're standing up on whatever little structure that you've built to inspect the rock before you start carving and you're looking down at it and walking around very slowly because you want to make sure you're not going to start carving where there are cracks or something or maybe you want to start carving where there are right, cracks yeah. depending <laughs> on how much you're taking off uh -huh. uh, and you notice that this little mirror hanging from your neck starts hanging not straight mm -hmm. and you're like huh so you take it off and after half an hour you've got a dozen people gathered around you and it, do you have a modern magnetics lab? Yeah. Mm hmm Exactly. So, but, but yeah, so as you were saying that there's more to the story than this. Right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> it's so good. Well, now I'm just imagining that and somebody being like, hmm, interesting. And then saying like, well, I'm going to put the navel there because in a lot of different cultures, that's like a holy spot on your body. Because it's where you're attached to your umbilical cord and your mother for sustenance and all that stuff. And there's lots of talk about, you know, cultures rising from the navel of the world and stuff. So that's why that was interesting. Um, but so they built, this is so cool. They basically passed a little magnetometer along these stones in situ and mapped by hand, which I thought was a very interesting statement, <laughs> uh, mapped by hand the anomalies that they saw on this little magnetometer. And then they got more intense and they got a three axis fluxscape magnetometer to map out these anomalies on these boulders to say, okay, so not all the boulders had a magnetic anomaly, which points to the fact that maybe they didn't have a thermo mag remnant magnetism that was imparted when they cooled. Um, so they didn't all have anomalies but a lot of them did. And so then they had to say, okay, well, we're going to get this flux gate magnetometer in here, but you don't want to just walk up there and wave the flux gate around because there's <laughs> all kinds of magnetic stuff happening with you and you can't really get the little sensor that far away from you to get a really good reading. And so they built this awesome like motorized frame rail where they could mount the flux gate on these aluminum things, which looks like the same thing you made our sample handler out of. Mm -hmm. And then they could systematically in one centimeter blocks, move this flux gate around and map out the magnetic anomaly to a really good precision. Um, 
of these different boulders. Right. And they went to some pretty extreme links here, like (laughs) shielding the motors with new metal, which Mm -hmm. is a a magnetic blocking metal that's Mm -hmm. exorbitantly expensive. Exorbitantly. (laughs) Uh, And looking at some of the maps, so using the handheld hall magnetometer, hall effect sensor, they were able to tell where the interesting areas were to use this large frame because it was going to be pretty slow. Right. Uh, and a lot of their figures, I'm intrigued that the maps look really something like something you would predict from a, you know, dipole formula theory, mm-hmm. except in one figure, there's a pretty sharp jog that I'm not sure what it could be caused by. It almost looks like a, an error in measurement. Yeah. Yeah, it could be that. I, it could be some weird mineralogy, but I doubt that. So, uh, But really, I don't think you'd have to go to all this trouble. We're looking at anomalies. Uh, I mean, the smallest one is like 30 microtesla. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you could probably do this a little bit cheaper, but the map certainly wouldn't be as pretty. <laughs> Look, and you wouldn't be as impressed, though. That's an impressive getup that they have. <laughs> yes. I, I can just imagine... Uh, with the difficulty I've had getting instruments uh, internationally, explaining this one at customs. I know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Just like this big aluminum box with this little flux gate magnetometer sitting there. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. These are pretty strong anomalies, but now you have a very distinct record of you know the polarity and where it is and whether these original artists knew of this. And it appears like they did. They actually did some statistics that proved that these weird anomalies that are situated, like I said, mostly sort of on the face by the right temple or in the navel areas on the statues that are have bodies, um, it's not statistically insignificant that these magnetic north and south poles align with these features on the body. Right. And... I mean, they did some other work, too, to try to make sure, okay, was this really lightning polarized? Um, They found some little spots that were magnetic anomalies that didn't line up with anything, but they also look like they might be from people with magnets. (laughs) Right. I I thought this was really cool. So, you know, lightning strikes this rock, and it imbues itself through the rock, and it, to most, well, to many of my studies, you know, it's noise, and it's terrible because you've gone to a lot of work, And then you demagnetize these rocks and you realize that they've all been struck by lightning. (laughs) And that isothermal remnant magnetization that gets imparted by lightning is very strong. And it's also very easy to see because it aligns everything to this exact direction. And so that's also why they think this, they don't think, I mean, they say that these magnetic parts of these rocks are definitely from lightning because you can see that alignment all the way through. Um, and if it wasn't lightning, which usually hits the rock perpendicularly, you know, it would look like something else. And so those other little magnetic anomalies don't go very far into the rock. And yeah, it just looks like somebody put like a really strong rare earth magnet or something up against the rocks and imparted a little magnetization that's still with the rocks. I can just see somebody in the field, like when they're collecting these and because they're not in their original positions, they've been moved. Right. Uh, I can just see somebody like taking a sign that says, you know, pot belly head number five or whatever and being like, oh, hey, these are magnetic. Click. 
and sticking the paper up there with a little rare earth magnet. Oh, man. <laughs> Not knowing that that would later be written about. <laughs> no kidding. A hundred years later or whatever. Exactly. That's, that's pretty awesome. That's so true. Uh, the one thing that I will complain about here is the use of the jet color map. Look, man. <laughs> yeah, that's disappointing. Yeah. All right. Well, it's not quite jet, but it is a jet-like, non-linearly yes. perceptual color map. Yes, it is not exactly jet. It could be worse, okay? <laughs> could be worse. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there are linear divergent color maps, and that's what you should be using because it does make these anomalies look a lot more pronounced than they really are. Yeah. Well, I mean, they are pretty big. They are, but the, the boundary looks much sharper than it should. Yeah. That's probably true. You're you're used to Aeromag. That's your problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the the other question that they answered was, you know, did was this magnetism in the you know in the rock before or after it was carved? And so obviously, because it aligns statistically significantly with these uh, features on the actual pot bellies, which is what they call them, and I love that um, that you know, these lightning strikes happened before. And so that's the whole point of the paper is that these people had a way to figure it out, whether it was just, hey, my shiny iron mirror aligns with these things. <laughs> uh, but that's that's really cool. So they say, you know, how much did they know about magnetism? And, you know, did they pick those areas specifically because they got struck by lightning a lot? That's even cooler to think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this was a super neat paper written by you know, some really famous people, and it's a really cool study, and it makes you think a lot about the interconnectedness of this stuff, which we often forget in Western science, so it's pretty, it's pretty neat. Absolutely. So if you have done a magnetic study of the sculptures in your yard to see if they have a strong magnetic field emanating from their navels and would like to tell us the significance <laughs> of them... Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Please send us that. Please, please, please. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter. We are at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. Uh, we're on the Slack channel, um, the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. You'll find us hanging out there sometimes. And as always, thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. Uh, we couldn't do this without you. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 